episode of the Duct Tape Marketing Podcast is brought to you by SEM Rush. It is our go-to SEO tool for doing audits, for tracking position and ranking, for really getting ideas on how to get more organic traffic for our clients, competitive intelligence, backlinks, and things like that. All the important SEO tools that you need for paid traffic, social media, PR, and of course, SEO. Check it out at semrush.com forward slash partner forward slash duct tape marketing. And we'll have that in the show notes. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Duct Tape Marketing Podcast. This is John Jantz. My guest today is Roger Dooley. He is the founder of Dooley Direct. He's an author and keynote speaker, and he's got a new book called Friction, the untapped force that can be your most powerful advantage. So, Roger, thanks for joining me. Well, thanks for having me on, John. I'm excited. Let's start with friction, the word friction. I mean, for a lot of people, uh, that's kind of a bad thing. I mean, friction in science is, you know, causes drag. Friction in business makes it hard to buy. You're proposing that it is somehow an advantage. Well, if you, it is usually a bad thing, but that means that if you can eliminate it, uh, you will have an advantage over your competition. I mean, if you look at what uh, Amazon has accomplished uh, uh, in the last 20 years, much of that has been by reducing friction. Back in 1997, uh, Jeff Bezos was talking about frictionless shopping when most companies were just thinking about getting serious about being online. Um, and throughout the years, he's made that um, just a point of relentless emphasis. Uh, even things like packaging. Uh, about 10 years ago, they saw the customers were struggling with these packages. Like if you go to Walmart, you buy a product. It's probably one of these plastic blister packs that, you know, like, like you see the product and uh, they look nice. Uh, they prevent theft because they're hard to put in your pocket and walk away with. But they're difficult to open. You know, you may... Uh, need tools. You may injure yourself by stabbing yourself with uh, sharp plastic. And so they said, hey, uh, we can eliminate that. And they created frustration-free packaging. And not only did people like the packaging, uh, the reviews on those products improved. They had 73% fewer negative comments uh, just from that change in packaging. And so uh, eliminating friction can be a big competitive advantage. It isn't just big companies because often big companies are the slowest to respond. Uh, so a smaller company uh, that sees how they can make things a little bit easier for their customers uh, can get that advantage. Yeah, and I must admit that you know my wife will be reading a magazine and she'll say we should get this, and and I, you know, it says the website and all that stuff, and I go straight to Amazon and see if they have it because I know it's going to be really easy for me to get it. Well, you and me both. You know, uh, John, just a few years ago, my loyalty to Amazon was tested uh, because uh, up to that point, there were in Texas, they were not charging sales tax. Then uh, they worked a deal with a state where they would be charging sales tax, which meant that all of my Amazon purchases immediately uh, had an 8% price increase. And I assumed that my behavior would change because of that. Uh, in fact, it changed almost not at all. Uh, and because of what you're saying, it's just so easy. Why would I want to go someplace else, deal with setting up an account, have some sort of uncertain shipping process where they say it's going to be seven to 10 days? And when I know with one click, I can get it from Amazon and it's going to be on my doorstep 48 hours later without fail. So, so you mentioned the bigger companies, it's harder. You know, some of that can just be the practical nature of making change is harder, period. But do you think it has anything to do with that? A lot of times friction is felt by a customer, but not necessarily expressed. Like they may not even realize that 
their shopping cart is hard to operate. Right. Well, the, um, many times customers can't articulate uh, that there is a problem. It's only when they see somebody doing it better. I mean, look at the taxi industry. You know, for pretty much uh, our entire lives, we dealt with taxis as something that was a you know, pretty good way to get around, generally better than the bus or the subway and uh, worked reasonably well. And it wasn't until Uber came along and showed us how every element of that process was full of friction from uh, getting the cab in the first place to getting out of it and paying. Uh, they eliminated all that. And suddenly it was like, wow, uh, you know, we none of us really saw that before, but uh, now we could. So, uh, yeah, I think the uh, what businesses have to do, whether they're large or small, uh, is kind of look at their processes from a, uh, a third party point of view, like instead of saying, well, this is how it's always been done, or this is how our competitors do it. And we're actually a little bit better than our competitors. Uh, for one, uh, you have to compare yourself to Amazon and to Uber and say, okay, is my experience as good as theirs? Uh, and, uh, if not, can I move my experience in that direction? So it's, um, uh, you know, it's just important to focus and also to observe customers you know, I, I bet you've had the same thing happen, John. You're on a website or you're trying to accomplish something and it just can't figure out uh, what to do. And you're wondering, did the people who created this website or this app uh, ever actually watch somebody try and go through it uh, for the first time? Because, you know, you're perplexed and you're struggling and you're clicking stuff. And, uh, and I think the answer is in many cases, they have not watched users go through it. They have an idea of what uh, uh, the users or customers want or will do or how they'll behave, but they haven't actually watched them doing it. And that's so critical. And I think the one thing that a lot of people underestimate too, is that, you know, if you use the taxi example, I mean, you know, you and I just tolerated it. We didn't, we, we didn't like it, but we didn't necessarily think we had a choice or that it was a, you know, that it was even a problem per se. It was just the way the world is. And I think when you watch what happens a lot of times is that next generation comes along and goes, this is nuts. Why, you know, we've been doing it, so that's all we know. But they're like new to it, and all of a sudden they're like, "Why would anybody do this?" I, I, I have uh, millennial age children that uh, that you know are so funny to watch how how little they will tolerate you know from a website uh, because they just that's not how they feel like the world should work, and they'll go find somebody who gets it. I mean, because they don't have that same sort of loyalty, I guess is what I'm getting at. Right. Well, it's not even so much a loyalty. It's that uh, they realize how uh, simple and powerful experiences can be. Uh, you know, uh, my I think a good example of uh, businesses that really don't get it uh, are cable providers. Uh, I have an Internet cable provider and I have a satellite TV provider, uh, and they both kind of fall into that category of uh, not getting it, making their experience really high friction Uh on Amazon, I can look at um, any anything I've bought in, I don't know, 10 years, 12 years, beats me. Uh, I can go back as long as I want and see every order I've placed uh, on my internet provider. I can only go back six months. Uh, so when I go to do my uh, tax, I say, okay, well, I need those bills uh, for that purpose. Uh, then it's, uh, you know, it's not there. Like, And you say, well, why would a business design an interface that would only let me look at the last six months? You know, that makes no sense. But unfortunately... Uh, businesses say, well, hey, you know, why would a customer want that? Or, you know, it's we've done it this way. It's been fine. And they don't have necessarily anybody that's forcing them to do it any better. 
Yeah, and that's a, that's actually a great feature of Amazon. Though, have you ever done this? You buy a book, and they go, "Well, you know, you bought this book two years ago," <laughs> and I go, "Oh, okay, so it's on my Kindles. Never mind." Yes, I've, I've personally I've never had that experience, John, but I have heard from people who have. <laughs> it happens to me all the time. Say, "Oh, the book looks interesting," and oh, damn, I bought that. I've got it on my shelf somewhere. I better go find it. Yeah, it's uh, it's great, and you know, and I think that is an example too of. Uh, a business that is putting its customers in the forefront because there are certainly some businesses out there would say, ha, that jerk just bought that for the second time. Uh, you know, where Amazon wants you to have a good experience uh, and they know that eventually you might discover that you bought it once you already had it and either you're going to return it or you're going to feel stupid because you have two copies now. Uh, and they help you prevent that. And, and and I think you just touched on where this starts, right? It's not just about how can we make this website faster, you know, easier to use. I mean, it really kind of starts with what you just said. How can we make sure that our customers are having a great experience? I mean, that's that's what sort of turns you into the detective to go looking for this stuff, isn't it? Yeah. And, uh, you know, I think just jumping back to taxis, if somebody had just, uh, say, taken a video of – uh, the taxi experience, you could look at particularly, I don't know, I'm uh, sure you get to Europe occasionally and uh, like to pay for taxis by credit card there. If I have a, uh, have to take a taxi and because Uber isn't available because it's um, illegal or something. Uh, and inevitably uh, what you see is uh, the driver first saying the machine's broken and then they say, no, I don't have any cash. So you got to use that. And so, okay, they reach under the seat. They pull out this uh, clunky machine, try and establish an internet connection, get your card, wait for the thing to print out. And then they've got to print it out and sign it and they've got to reenter. And it's just like this horrible process uh, that takes minutes. Uh, and if someone just looked at that, they could say, well, can I imagine a way like in a perfect universe where I could eliminate this. And, you know, it wouldn't be that difficult to come up with multiple ways of eliminating that process. But, uh, uh, you know, it took uh, uh, this really disruptive company to come along and actually do it. And I suspect, because you pay attention to this stuff, that I can envision you across the counter from, you know, a young clerk who has a very, uh, a, a process that is, <laughs> is riddled with friction and doesn't make any sense to anybody uh, and and you point it out to them and uh, and they say well that's that's the way we do it here or that's how we've always done it here yeah or or they say uh, yeah no kidding uh, you know we've complained about this uh, but uh, they won't do anything about it you know more often than not uh, people inside the company uh, can identify this friction but they are unable to get it fixed. And, you know, to me, the important thing is that businesses develop a friction aware culture uh, so that uh, their employees uh, are sensitized to look forward in the customer experience, but even in their own experience, because uh, there is a huge amount of money. In fact, there's a Harvard Business Review article that estimated that $3 trillion a year is wasted in U.S. businesses by what they called organizational drag. You used the word drag uh, just in the uh, intro. And uh, organizational drag is what they call all the time that's wasted by bad processes, uh, uh, dealing with email that you shouldn't have to deal with, meetings uh, that serve no purpose, or you know, all this wasted time in organizations as a $3 trillion problem. And so it, businesses that develop this friction awareness will not only uh, improve their customer experience, but they'll improve their internal experience. Uh, and that's great because the team members themselves do not enjoy wasting their time. Uh, they'll be more engaged if they feel they're working on stuff that is important or is helping a customer. 
uh, as opposed to uh, doing stuff that is really serving no purpose uh, other than the fact that it's they've got to do it. Yeah, I read a survey. Uh, this is going back at least a decade, maybe longer. Um, and they were, it was a giant Gallup survey talking about uh, you know what what made people happy at work. And you know you would think it would be that that they you know felt challenged and they were paid well and and the number one thing was that they had the tools that allowed them to do the work effectively you know so essentially you know processes and and equipment and tools and things are you know a part of that that causes friction isn't it yeah and there's a lot of uh, work that's been done on work and motivation uh, and having that work directed in a a productive, creative way is one uh, key metric. Uh, uh, Dan Ariely did some uh, really interesting work and wrote a short book called Payoff about that, but where uh, they would have people assemble Legos under different conditions. Uh, in some cases, immediately after the person assembled the Lego, the experimenter would tear it apart and throw the pieces in the box. Uh, needless to say, the people that had that experience were much less motivated to build more Legos, even though uh, they were being paid the same as folks where uh, their creation was not destroyed. So <clears throat> you mentioned this uh, friction awareness. I'm just trying to envision, you know, how does, where does somebody go looking for it? Where does it hide? You know, how do you, you know, if I'm listening to this and I think, okay, I'm not aware of huge friction, where do, you know, how do I find it? How do I create this awareness culture? Well, by reading the book for one, but uh, no, seriously, John, I think that uh, uh, just uh, looking for examples of it, becoming aware of it, uh, you know, it's sort of like uh, uh, if there's a background hum noise, which hopefully there isn't in this recording, but you generally might not be aware of it. But if you listen for that background hum, you say, oh yeah, okay. Uh, it's there. And, you know, friction is kind of the same way because we come, become just sort of used to it, uh, you know, like that tax experience and every other uh, experience like that. And, but if we start looking at it from a more of an absolute point of view, uh, and imagining better ways, then we start seeing it. I found that just if, if I do a talk where I spend maybe, uh, you know, uh, 30 or 50 minutes talking about friction, um, just that exposure will get people for the rest of the day uh, um, yelling friction when they encounter some difficulty in the uh, in the hotel or the conference center or something where there's a line or you know some form they have to fill out. Uh, so it's really just sort of sensitizing yourself. And then once you start seeing it, it's pretty hard to stop seeing it, which is in some ways is kind of uh, – uh, bad because you cannot cure all the friction <laughs> that you're going to experience, uh, uh, especially when uh, uh, you're simply uh, uh, the customer and someone else is controlling that. And it can get you, um, it gets me at least a little bit cranky at times. There's a line from the Scarlet Letter uh, by Nathaniel Hawthorne. I'm I'm actually doing uh, my next project involves some of that literature, so that's. I was going to say this is taking really that, literary. Yeah, I was going to say that, that that's why this is. Uh, you know, right at hand. And it was, she had not known the weight until she felt the freedom. Um, and I think that really goes, you know, very directly to this. A lot of times we don't realize how much we're weighed down until we find this better way. And we're like, holy crap. Uh, that wow. I, I would have put that in the book uh, had I known that quote at the time, John. So I may still have to use that somehow. So thank you for that. And, and you talk about this thing actually called invisible friction. Indeed. Um, you know, not to some degree, all friction can be a little bit invisible if we're not looking for it. But uh, there is another kind of uh, cognitive friction where uh, we 
there's no rational reason why something should be higher in friction, but it's all in our brains. And it has to do with a concept called cognitive fluency, how easy it is for our brains to process something. And uh, this affects our behavior in a few ways. Um, if something is difficult to say or read, it seems more dangerous and risky. Uh, so uh, when scientists ask people to rate amusement park rides for how dangerous they were or risky, uh, if they had a hard to say name, the exact same ride and description um, was rated as being more dangerous. Same thing for prescription drugs. Uh, drugs that were hard to say were seen as more dangerous. Uh, but where the friction comes into play uh, is that if something is hard for us to process, it seems more difficult. Uh, there's another research project that found people were less uh, likely to follow important medical instructions. Now imagine that uh, uh, medical instructions that are important for their health and perhaps their life, uh, if those instructions were in a hard to read font. Uh, and uh, it wasn't that they were so difficult that it was impossible to read. It's just that when things are uh, hard for our brains to process, even a little bit harder, they seem a little bit more difficult. Uh, at the University of Minnesota, they ran this great experiment uh, that asked people how long it would take to perform a simple exercise. They just gave them two short sentences, uh, exact same text for two groups. One group saw it in a simple Arial sans serif font, so a very easy to read font. Uh, the second group saw the exact same instructions in a slightly harder to read brushy font. Still perfectly legible. You'd have no problem reading it. But uh, the first group that saw it in the simple font said it would take eight minutes to do. The second group said it would take 15 minutes. Uh, so what was happening there was that the difficulty in processing that information, the difficulty in reading, uh, translated into difficulty in doing. And that's that's really an important message for anybody who is designing websites or apps or print material. Uh, you know, anytime you're asking somebody to, to do something, you want to make sure that uh, uh, those instructions uh, are uh, short, concise, easy to read, black on white or something, uh, uh, and uh, use the simplest font possible because the more difficult it is to read, uh, the uh, harder whatever it is you want them to do is going to seem and the less likely they'll be to do it. Well, I know from a marketing standpoint, you know, it's pretty, pretty accepted logic that while you would think giving people lots of choices uh, would actually make their decision easier, it really creates friction that you're sometimes better off saying you want, you know, A or B, and that's about it. Yeah, well, Barry Schwartz uh, wrote an entire book called The Paradox of Choice that uh, um, kind of zoomed in on that issue that uh, in many cases, not in all cases, but in many cases, uh, the more choice you have, uh, the less likely you are to actually make a decision. Uh, and, you know, it varies, uh, but there's ways of dealing with that, too. One is to just limit the number of choices. You know, if you only need three plans, don't offer people seven plans because that uh, uh, may kick them into sort of an analytical mode where they end up making no decision at all. Uh, guiding them to the most popular of the three plans uh, is a great way to show, okay, uh, you know, there's good, better, and best. Almost everybody chooses better. At that point, that's a really easy decision for most people to make. Uh, but if you've got uh, uh, seven plans and it's, you know, some have different features and it's, they're overlapping and uh, that's where it gets confusing. So, uh, but you know, Amazon uh, has unlimited choice. You know, if you pick any product, they probably carry just about 
every version of that product uh, that's available on the planet. Uh, but the way they help their customers is by providing a whole series of screens and filters and cues. So uh, first of all, they will uh, rank the products in the way they think that uh, best fits your search. Uh, they will show you this one is a bestseller. Uh, they will show you this one is uh, best rated. They'll show you that uh, it's got four and a half stars from, uh, you know, 2000 reviews. And all of these things uh, are cues that let you hopefully uh, narrow down your choice really quickly and distinguish between two very similar looking choices. So uh, they do just fine because uh, it, for them, offering a lot of choice means that like you, when you hear about a product, the first thing you do is check Amazon because you figure out ah, odds are they'll have it. Uh, but then uh, instead of just presenting you with a big uh, mass of products that you have to sort through, uh, they provide you all kinds of tools to uh, choose the right one. Now, we've talked mostly about business, but you kind of wander into, you know, how friction shows up just in our lives, in, in our habits and things. Uh, um, you know, I know that, you know, anytime I'm trying to lose a little weight, um, if I have healthy food sitting around, <laughs> I will, and it's easy for me to get, I will do a lot better job than if I have to actually work to get that food. So how does it play, how does friction play out in our habits? Well, uh, it is a very powerful force. I've uh, read several books on this topic. My friend Art Markman from uh, here at University of Texas, Austin, uh, is a uh, pretty slim guy these days, but uh, he had had a weight problem in some years back. And uh, he found uh, that uh, his downfall was Ben and Jerry's ice cream. Uh, those little pint containers that theoretically, if you read the label, there's, I don't know, like four servings in there or three or four servings. But if you've ever actually just pulled one out of the freezer and started eating it with a spoon, uh, you find it's really easy to polish it off in one sitting. You know, you get down halfway and actually you're more than halfway at that point. At least it seems like a small amount to put back in the fridge, right? So you just keep going and before you know it, it's gone. And you've <laughs> added uh, who knows how many calories into your uh, daily diet. Uh, his uh, simple realization was uh, if he did not have that in the house, uh, he would probably not drive to the store to get it. Uh, so if he made that decision when he had the uh, uh, willpower, for the future saying, okay, I'm in the store. I'm not going to buy that because I know it's bad for me. And I know I'll eat the whole darn thing. Uh, then, uh, he would, uh, not put up with a considerable friction of getting in his car and uh, driving to the store to get it. Uh, but going beyond that, uh, other habit change, uh, experts like James Clear and PJ uh, Fogg, uh, all talk about even just creating uh, moderate friction. Okay. You know, if you, uh, have potato chips in the house, don't, uh, leave them out on the counter. Uh, put them on a high shelf in the cupboard. Put them in the garage, maybe. And uh, anything that makes it more difficult, even the smallest interventions uh, can make a difference. Uh, some Yale researchers uh, uh, did a study for Google uh, where Google provides free food, which is a nice benefit of working there, but people tend to overconsume, uh, and particularly things like uh, sweets, candy, M&Ms. I mean, they are something that your brain will taste, say, hey, that's pretty good. I want more of that. And people will keep eating them. They found that just putting the M&Ms in an opaque container and moving it a little bit farther away uh, from the front of the shelf uh, caused, allowed uh, them to cut a couple of million calories out of one office's budget every month, uh, which is uh, pretty phenomenal and very similar exper experiments in uh, cafeteria lines where putting the healthy stuff in front and the non-healthy stuff a little bit farther away 
all of these things had a measurable effects. And obviously, the more friction that you had, uh, the more profound the effect. In one case, uh, in that cafeteria line, instead of just moving it to the back, uh, they created a separate line for uh, like uh, ice cream and soft drinks, uh, stuff that you were not supposed to eat. Uh, and they found that in that case, it uh, dropped consumption about 90% because most people did not want to put up with the hassle of going to another line, you know, selecting their items and paying for it separately. So, uh, uh, you know, it's just wh how mu however much friction you can add uh, without creating uh, perhaps uh, a rebellion. I'm chatting with Roger Dooley, author of Friction, the untapped force that can be your most powerful advantage. So, Roger, tell people where uh, they can find out more about your work and the book itself. Probably the best jumping off point is rogerdooley.com. I link to all of my stuff there, my blogs at Neuromarketing and Forbes, and have links to the books, of course. Uh, and on social media, I am on all of the channels, but I'm most easy to find on Twitter where I am at Roger Dooley. Well, thanks uh, for joining us, Roger, and uh, hopefully we'll see you someday out there on the road in a frictionless world. Uh, if only that would happen. That'd be great, John. Thanks so much for having me.